If you have knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, back pain, and you've gone to your experts and you've gone to your MRIs, you're probably being treated wrong. Once again, our reductionist medical practice looks at singular causes and the treatments and without understanding the full body system and how the systems work. There is a whole better way. It's drug-free, it's surgery-free, it's simple. Mitchell Yass, genius, physical, doctor of physical therapy, has been a bottom line expert for years and I'm about to talk to him. This is Sarah Heiner and it's the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Dr. of Physical Therapy, Mitchell Yass. Mitch is the creator of the Yass Method for diagnosing and treating chronic pain. Having started as a bodybuilder, Yass uses his deep understanding of the body's muscular system to identify the root cause of pain, rather than to rely on mechanical or electronic diagnostic testing. He listens to his patients, he watches their body movements, and he understands where there are muscular imbalances that are creating the pain. Mitch has successfully treated thousands of patients who had already spent weeks, months, or even years with other traditional practitioners. You can learn more about Dr. Yass and his work at MitchellYass.com. Mitch, welcome. Thank you for being here today. It's great to be with you, Sarah. So, well, and you know, bottom line readers have been hearing from you and we had your blog for a while and they've been seeing you in the publications for years helping them fix and think about their pain in an entirely different way than anybody else thinks about it right whether they're they have hip pain joint pain arthritis pain back pain you have a whole different view of the world so let's go back and tell me like where did that come from and why what is it that you're seeing that nobody else is So I actually began my entrance into the medical system when I went back as a second career to medical school to become a physical therapist. And prior to that, I had been weightlifting for several years. I had some self-esteem issues. I was kind of a thin guy and I wanted to get bigger. And so I amazingly, kind of strangely, took a high school physics course and started applying the laws of physics to weightlifting and that understanding allowed myself shockingly to put on 40 pounds of muscle over four years so what was it that, that you were seeing in so even as a weightlifter like the, there have been bodybuilders forever what was different that you were seeing that of how the body so worked the, the, the majority of information that is gotten when you're trying to weightlift is through magazines that are produced mostly to help to sell supplements and other types of mechanisms. So you have this constant need for information. And as a result of that, you're getting a lot of information that's probably not too accurate in terms of the accuracy of being able to isolate muscles and strengthen them. What made me different was I kind of just negated anything else that I had heard up to that point and said, you know what, the laws of physics are absolute. So in terms of positioning my arm, how would I position that such that it would be directly opposite the force of gravity? Because I know gravity is the primary component that allows resistance to be pulled against. And I just varied that understanding with each type of exercise I was doing. In doing so, it allowed me to isolate muscles in a way that very few people can 
and it allows me to cause the maximum amount of resistance to be pushed against that muscle, which allows the muscle to grow in the shortest period of time. I think the thing I'm most proud about is over 32 years of weightlifting, people have always forever talked about a plateau. I have never plateaued. I consistently get stronger after 32 years of weightlifting. So that was kind of the inception of who I was. Then I go to medical school and they're talking about the primary cause of pain is being identified through MRIs. I was in medical school from uh, 1990 to 1990, uh, 1991 to 1990, I'm sorry, 1981 to 1983. And in 1984, I believe it was, uh, I'm sorry, 1991 to 1993, 1994 is the first time they do a study on people who have no back pain and find 70% of them having herniated discs. So because of this initial sense that the cause wasn't structural and that it in fact was muscular, that kind of reinforced my position and I kind of then went on to treat based on this unique understanding that in most cases the cause of pain seemed to be muscular regardless of whether structural variations such as herniated discs or arthritis or meniscal tears were being identified. Let's That's break that really down. where I separated myself. Well, and I think, you know, you, you, you talk about the MRI in, in passing a little bit, right? So you just talk, you, you went from beginning to end, but I think that's such a vital thing to let's talk about that for a second, because the medical reductionist philosophy is they look at the body parts, they test the body parts, they treat the body parts. And you and I both know that if, you know, if a hundred people go in to get an MRI, which is now the primary way that so many people diagnose pain, right? They go in, they give you an MRI. And then mm -hmm. they say, you have a disc problem or you have, you know, you, you have a, I went in with my hips and they gave me an MRI and they said I had a labral tear. And, but that's not my problem, right? So they go in and they look at those and then they, they assume that that's really the problem, except for the fact, as you said, they did this other test that showed that there are a lot of people with structural problems that don't have any pain. There are people that have pain that don't have structural problems, people with structural problems that don't have any pain. So something's not, not making sense, and yet the medical community is continuing in this philosophy and presumption. Sure. So what, what basically happens is if we could go back, I always think it's important to start at the crux of understanding, and that is to say, what is pain? Why do people have pain or any other symptom? And the reason is because it's an attempt by a tissue that's in distress in the body, and it's an attempt to create a conscious awareness of that distress so that an intervention can be performed and resolve the distress of that tissue. Once the distress of the tissue is resolved, that tissue no longer has to elicit the emergency signal of pain, and it ceases. So if we can take that concept, we want to try to say to ourselves, what's the purpose of diagnostics? The purpose of diagnostics, quite simply, is identify the tissue that's in distress. So what happens is in the 1990s, the MRI, 1980s, the MRI gets developed and it kind of sprung on the world. I truly don't believe that any study was performed. It just seemed like such an incredible technology because for the first time you were actually seeing soft tissue where prior to that, the x-ray could only show um, heart tissue, like bone, basically. Well, but also in so, medical practice, they look for the broken piece, right? Sure. <laughs> Even sure, though there's absolutely. broken parts all over our bodies, right? We all function with all sorts of broken things, but they like, if I can find something that's broken, that must be the problem. 
Correct. That's what happens. So what happens is it starts showing there are these structural variations, herniated discs, arthritis, meniscal tears, in the same region where the pain is being elicited. And this is where the system breaks down. What was determined to be used was something called correlative theory, or it's also known as junk science. And what it's basically saying... <laughs> correlative theory, or what is that, junk science? It's actually considered junk science. It's right. the lowest form. It's what's oftentimes used, but when looked at by science, people say it's not logical because it's, it, it can be so um, proven to be a baseless method. So correlative theory basically says that if a herniated disc is identified at the time you're having pain, it will be asserted that that's the cause of the pain, simply because it's identified at the time you're having the pain. And everybody understands the MRI is performed when you're having pain, certainly not before. Well, and not only that, pain can radiate, right? I could have pain in my hip, but it started in my knee, or I could have pain in my knee and it started in my back. Absolutely. So it's not like it's what, you know, the pain is right in that place. And yet they're assuming it and they're they're pointing a finger at it. Absolutely. If you're going to perform an MRI, you got to pick a place. And so the general perception is of the medical system is to look where the symptom exists. And so any structural variation that might be deviated, that's what they're going to try to look at. So that's why they do the MRI. And the equivalent understanding of this is that if I was to open my front door as the sun rises, I can now assert that opening the front door causes the sun to rise. And I would hope most people would say that's insane. Well, this concept of correlating a structural variation to the cause of your pain simply because it exists at the time of pain is just as insane. Which means now that they are then treating it in the wrong way. So remember, what's the purpose of diagnostics? To identify the tissue in distress. If you do not identify the correct tissue and treat the wrong tissue, then the tissue in distress continues to be in distress therefore eliciting the symptom, which is the reason why chronic pain exists. Chronic pain exists for one reason and one reason alone. It can only be one thing, misdiagnosis. The wrong tissue has been identified and treated, therefore the tissue in distress continues to be in distress eliciting symptoms. You have a great quote. I I was reading your book last night, The the Yas, I'll plug it, The Yas Method for Pain-Free Movement. And um, in the introduction, you talk about that chronic pain is not from chronic disease. It's from misdiagnosed acute pain. And yet we've got millions of people that are, you know, hello, opioid crisis, millions and billions in physical therapy, knee replacements, hip replacements. You told me these incredible stats about how many knee knee and hip replacements are being done that A, didn't used to be done and B, didn't need to be done. There's no question that what has happened is there has been a cultural acceptance of chronic pain simply because so many people now have it it's a global epidemic right 130 million americans roughly 1 billion people worldwide suffer from chronic pain so there's this acceptance of that and so what happens is there's this kind of shift to thinking well chronic pain should be there and it's acceptable because it's kind of like a chronic disease They've now made you believe it's just like having cancer or it's just like having MS. What I think people must understand is that pain is a signal. It is not an entity onto its own. It is not something to be treated. Pain represents a tissue in distress. It is the ability to identify that tissue 
and without the distress of that tissue that causes the need for the pain to be resolved. So as long as you continue to think that pain is something to be treated, you're open to getting epidural nerve blocks and cortisone shots and pain medication and anti-inflammatories and radiofrequency ablation and all this psychotic stuff that's going on when in fact the reason that you're suffering from chronic pain is quite simply you didn't identify the right tissue. If you had, you wouldn't have pain. And for some bizarre reason, I seem to be the only person <laughs> who's trying to move it back to that direction of saying pain represents a tissue in distress. You must be able to provide a narrative in the initial state before you even treat somebody as to say, this is the tissue I believe is causing the symptom. I know that based on this physical presentation. This is the treatment I'm going to provide so that I can resolve the stress of that tissue, thereby ending the need for the, the emergency signal of pain. That is the core basis of the YAS method. I, 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 that you can't, can't say that more powerfully or enough, the cultural acceptance of pain and that the, you know, what, exactly what you're saying that you know pain pain has been viewed as a disease and we have i've talked in other places about we've developed zero tolerance of pain or any imperfection right so that and the whole philosophy of just dial that down let me give you a painkiller and then the doctors figure well if you don't complain about your symptoms anymore then you must be fixed but you're not as you say that pain is a symptom and telling you that there is an issue going on in your body just like if you have a fever your fever is actually helping your body heal and kill whatever bacteria or virus is in your body. And if you, if you suppress that fever, your body can't fight the disease anymore. And now that disease can right. take you over. So yeah, I, it, it's absolutely crazy. You can look at it in one of the, my favorite ones to explain. I think people really get this concept of is if you have high blood pressure, it's typically the result of plaque developing in an artery, which shrinks the size of the opening. Therefore, there's more pressure needed to get through it. And what does the medical system do? The first thing it'll do is give you Lasix, which is an attempt to reduce the amount of blood volume. They'll give you a beta blocker, which is an attempt to reduce the nerve conductivity to the heart to reduce its ability to pump. And then they give you a calcium channel block, a calcium must enter a muscle for it to contract. So you've done everything to reduce how much force is being created, and that will reduce your number, but you never did anything to address the plaque, the very cause right. that you simply did the appropriate exercise and dieted correctly, you would have reopened the size of that lumen, that, that opening, and you would have reduced it, but also changed its cause, the actual cause. Therefore, you wouldn't have the problem anymore. That's why you stay on hypertensive medicine for how long? Forever. It's insane. Yes. So let's talk about some of the mistreatment. Now, we're going to talk about like the way that you're able to help other people and, and, and help them fix it. We'll, do, we'll get to solutions in a second. But I really want people to understand, you know, just in terms of if they've got back surgery, if they're thinking about herniated discs, you've worked with people on backs that, that they don't need that surgery. Even knee replacements, right. joint replacements. How many people have you worked on that, you know, they were told they need a joint replacement, but in fact they didn't? It's in the thousands. It's in the thousands, probably close to 15,000 over 25 years. And do these people, if they get the joint replacement, what happens? They go, they, they're still in pain. They still have the problem. It just comes back sure, again. Sure, So if we could just briefly give this concept, why is everyone really having pain? In this period of time versus any other time in the history of mankind, one funny kind of note, post-mortem studies in the 1950s showed over 40% of the population had herniated discs. How come there was no chronic pain in the 1950s? Because it doesn't cause pain. 
So if we say to ourselves, well, then what is causing pain in this period of time? The answer is quite clearly technology has led to the point where people have to do less physically, allowing their muscles to weaken to where they end up then having to try to work harder to do activity when they decide to. That's what leads to strain. Strain can cause pain in muscles. Muscles can actually reverse symptoms, just as nerves can. And muscles determine the joint position of joints. Uh, and as a result of that, you could have pain in a joint. It has nothing to do with the structure. It has to do with the muscular forces on the joint. So most pain, 98% of cases, it's muscular in nature. So, so is, our, is the, also the stress that people feel like they have, and I've also challenged that you know people now complain that they're under so much stress. Meanwhile, you look at our lives today, the conveniences of life today, and you compare it to, you know, the middle of World War II or the Depression or, you know, all the, all the challenges that people had. But meanwhile, people now go, oh, I'm so stressed. And what does stress do? Stress makes you tense your muscles. I watch myself all day long going, oh, my shoulders are high. So right. does that, is that creating even more aggravation on the muscles and that we need to... Sure. So my, my point to that would be stress definitely causes muscles to tighten. And if they're already in a position of strain, there's a higher probability they will strain. But if you were to condition your muscles appropriately, then stress would not have its effect of creating a symptom. So you got to watch out for that concept, which is coming first. Is it the stress or is it the lack of conditioning? It's the lack of conditioning because people like me, let's say, who are very, very well conditioned, regardless of the stress, I get no symptoms. I never have tightness or anything like right. that because my muscles are in a position to even take on the level of force increase that might come from a stress. So just the so, fact that we are, we are not moving. We are increasingly a, a society of sitting and we don't have to, so, we don't have to so, physically, so, just so, basic so, things like we don't have to hang the wash on the line. And we don't have to yeah. wash the car by hand. And we don't, like all those I mean, things, you, life used to be very you physical. You can take it to every level. You can right. take it to every level. Warehouses used to be stocked by people. Now it's robots. I mean, there's every aspect that you could see in life where technology has, has led to the point of doing less. If you want to change your channel, you don't even have to use your thumb to click the remote. You just walk into the remote and tell it, change the channel for me. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's actually, we've gotten to the point where we are trying to do less and less physically. And that could actually also be seen. Discovery did a wonderful documentary on evolution of mankind and survival of the fittest. And they have noted that due to technology, survival of the fittest and evolution has basically been forced to cease because technology allows us to do the things we no longer had to work on to improve or enhance the body, which led to survival of the fittest. And in fact, things like cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes are considered non-evolutionary diseases. They're actually occurring when as a result of the fact that the body just isn't being utilized to hunt, to fish, to farm, right. to move around, to get out of weather. So my position is that pain is in the exact same category. It is directly the same as these types of non-evolutionary disease entities. Um, the problem is that because the MRI keeps finding structural variations, nobody's willing to acknowledge that the possibility is that it's actually the fact that the force requirements of the activities you're performing is greater than the force output of your muscles. Therefore, the muscles will have a tendency to strain. Now, That's the problem. Also, why I battle to get inroads with people to recognize that what I'm saying is correct, because it's very easy to look at a picture 
That picture is coming from a million-dollar machine. You'll get 10 opinions, and they'll all say the same thing, which is really not 10 independent opinions. It's 10 of the same opinions because they're educated and trained to do the same thing, right? And so you've got this great-looking thing, and yet I'm telling you, oh, you know what your problem is? It's the forces that are running through your body and the inability of your body to adapt to it. Well, forces are invisible. So it's very hard for me to show you something clearly in comparison to that. That's where the battle lies. But because that's more obvious, doesn't make it true. Right. And we as patients have been trained to the technology the same way the doctors have. Now, let me ask you Absolutely. this. Are we also, so now a lot of people know we're not as physically active as we've always been. So what do they do instead? They make sure they exercise for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour every day. But then now, is that in some ways like it's making them, they might get, get better cardiac fitness, but if I ride a stationary bicycle every day and then I sit on my butt the rest of the time, or if I jog or if I do whatever my exercise of choice is, but I'm not exercising my entire body am i almost creating out of balance through that process like the even the people that are trying to exercise are now creating wrong forces right so so by the way here's another key point that's to justify my position that it's technology um pain was typically considered an older person's problem right it was when you retired you ended up getting pain Right. If you notice now, you've got people I treat people down to the teens, people in college having problems with sciatica and back pain and all this stuff. Right. So you could clearly see that something there's been a major shift in the demographic of people who are having pain. And that is a clear indicator that it's a, it's a lack of use of muscle um, because it was the older person associated with a retired mindset. But now it's gone all the way down. Well, I so think there's another point, aspect. I think Mitch, there's yeah. another aspect with the kids, actually. Because these kids, if they wanted, you know, when I when I was a young person and I played, I started playing field hockey in high school. Okay, I played a little field hockey. I played a little tennis. I did whatever. Mm-hmm. Now the young athletes, they start so young. The programs are so intense, and they're asked to specialize way too early before their bodies are fully developed. So I think some of their what do you, what do you think of this? Sarah's theory is that some of their physical and muscular challenges are that they're specializing in a specific um, activity way too young, so their bodies aren't developing in a rounded way. Right, so you, you, you wanna try to break down the types of reasons people are having pain, uh, is that, that it's all, as I said, 98% of the case due to some sort of muscle weakness or imbalance into two primary groups. You have the group of people who are working and sitting 10 to 12 hours a day, whatever they're doing, is mostly a sedentary-based lifestyle, and then they choose to try to do something. Oh, I'm going to go garden this weekend. Or I think suddenly I'm going to play tennis this weekend. And they've become so weakened to where when they go to try to use their muscles, the force output isn't there, and they strain. You have this other side of people who say, you know what, I'm going to stay active, even the ones you're referring to, the younger kid who starts very early in doing these activities. What people are not recognizing is the fact that activities require groups of muscles to perform them. If there is a weakened muscle within that group that cannot perform it, it will have a tendency to strain. The body will try not to allow that to happen, so it compensates. So you'll still try to perform the activity, you just alter how you do it. In doing that, you make other muscles susceptible and they strain. Right. That is the reason why activity-based jogging, walking, treadmills, 
aqua therapy, yoga, Pilates. Many, many people who are trying to do the right thing by themselves, CrossFit, any of these functional activity type exercises, they're getting hurt. The reason is because they're not recognizing they're doing activity-based actions or forms of exercise, and what they really need to do is isolated strengthening, incorporating progressive resistance exercise to keep every single muscle strong so that when they're integrated back into these activity-based exercises, they have enough strength and balance to perform them without straining. So it's good that they're trying. I would never deny that. Everyone should be doing something, but you must recognize that you have to have isolated strength and balance to perform the functional type of exercises without hurting yourself. Yeah, that's something that was really interesting to me because you and I just actually did a session the other day. I've I've written about, I've talked about my hips that have been incredibly tight. Way, you know, exercise, athlete for years, not not taking care of myself sitting on my butt for way too long every day and extremely tight hips. And I've been to physical therapists. As I said, I've been to MRIs. I went to some of the top orthopedists in the country. They told me I had a tear in the tissue surrounding my hip. That if, and I, they wanted to give me cortisone shots. No, 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 no. So when I had a session with you the other day, you had very isolated exercises, one muscle at a time that very specifically looks and says, here's the gap in your strength and here's what needs to be strengthened, which was, which is unique relative to the other phys- physical therapists I've been to where they, I would do these kind of group muscle exercises. Right, so, so just so people can clarify and understand what my position is, I have a doctorate in physical therapy, my background was in physical therapy, my educational background. I deviated from it because I began to recognize that certain things about the curriculum limited me from achieving what I wanted. One of the primary issues is the fact that as you're a physical therapist, you are not required by law to confirm or refute a diagnosis. I think anyone who's gone to physical therapy recognizes that you are referred to physical therapists by some sort of medical specialist, a specialist, an orthopedist, a neurologist. The diagnosis that's used for your treatment is from the specialist, the herniated disc, stenosis, arthritis, meniscal tear, any of those type things. The thing you want to understand is that those structural variations were in fact the tissue soliciting your symptom, only surgery was going to resolve those. So the use of physical therapy was more as it's described at the American Physical Therapy Association website as a palliative care, a mechanism designed only to minimize your symptoms. My position was that I could never, ever treat anybody unless I could identify, as I described earlier, the tissue in distress that was eliciting the symptom because I need to address that tissue. That's why I went on and tried to hone my ability. What, what I described the YASH method is, is not a form of treatment. It's a diagnostic model. What happened in your particular case was you were having symptoms with your jogging you had to understand what tissue was eliciting those symptoms. And once we identified it as muscular, you have to understand which particular muscles are impeding you from doing the jogging correctly. At that point, you only address the muscles that are eliciting the symptoms. Unfortunately, when you go to physical therapy or fitness, there's this general sense of, oh, well, let's just strengthen everything. Well, if there's an imbalance, such as the quad muscle, front thigh muscle being stronger than the back thigh muscle causing knee pain, and you strengthen the quad and the hamstring, you're going to sustain the imbalance and you're going to continue to have the knee pain. You have to understand what the muscular deficit is and only treat those muscles. And then when you're treating them, 
utilize an exercise that allows you to isolate just that muscle, and that typically means that exercise includes moving one joint in one direction. Anything outside of that, you can't be isolating a muscle, and that's what we did with you. So let's actually talk about a couple of the most common pain areas and where yeah. you know where they're most commonly misdiagnosed and if it's possible, if there's any rules of thumb that in general, this is what, what the issue is. Can we try and do that? Sure, sure. Okay, so, so you, you just mentioned knee pain. I'm sorry? You just mentioned knee pain, so let's start there. Okay, so let's talk about knee pain. All right, here's a big one. The majority of people's knee pain is around the kneecap. They get an MRI, it says they're quote unquote bone on bone or have arthritis or something like that. This is really a simple concept to understand. The knee joint is actually comprised of two joints, the joint between the thigh bone and lower leg bone, and then the joint between the kneecap and the thigh bone. So when you're talking about meniscus, arthritis, bone on bone, any of these type things, the location of that is typically relating to the joint between the thigh bone and lower leg bone. So if you're having pain around your kneecap, I can say unequivocally, irrefutably, those structural variations could never cause symptoms around the kneecap because they're occurring at a different joint. That, that's just irrefutable. So you want to talk about, well, what could cause pain around the kneecap? You simply have to understand that the kneecap's position as it runs through the joint to allow you to straighten and bend your knee is directly related to the force of the quad muscle, the front thigh muscle, which is attached to the kneecap. So the kneecap moves through the joint based on how the quad, the front thigh muscle pulls. So if it was very strong in relationship to the hamstring, it can shorten and compress the kneecap in the joint, making it more forceful in the joint as you bend the knee, that can cause pain. You can strain the front thigh muscle, the quad muscle. It then causes less force. That can cause the kneecap to rise slightly, move laterally and catch the outer border of the kneecap. And by the way, it could maybe be a symptom of not just pain, but a snapping sensation. Stop thinking that snapping sensations indicate structural variations. Oftentimes, it simply means that there's a misalignment of the two joints and they're rubbing in a way that they shouldn't. That's what's leading to the snapping, but it's a muscular cause. This is a classic example of that. So this so is really a ratio of the quad strength to the hamstring strength. Exactly. That is the primary reason. And I always show people, listen, stretch your quad, your front thigh muscle, and see if your pain goes away. In 90% of those cases, the pain diminishes. That just proved the cause was a tight quad. If you had a meniscal tear or arthritis or any of these other things, a variation in your quad length would have no ability to alter your pain. So you just proved you had a muscular problem. Classic thing to do. Stretch your quad, first thing. If you have a decrease in pain, you know what your problem is. And then what's, what's the mistreatment that most people are, suffer, are being told to do for those kinds of things, for that knee pain? So, yeah, so, so when you kind of go for either a fitness or a physical therapy type of treatment, then a lot of what everyone's being told to do are the four raising the leg movements. Um, raising, well, it turns out that if your quad is stronger than your hamstring and you raise your leg, then you're strengthening your quad. You're literally causing the tightness to increase. That's why people go six months to a year of physical therapy and they're still having the same pain and they're confused, the therapist's confused, and no one's recognizing that they're actually enhancing the problem. Uh, going and doing a bicycle, going and doing Pilates, going and doing a, a yoga, 
any of these things will never correct that imbalance. The YAS method mechanism would have been to identify through muscle testing, flexibility testing, um, looking at posture, and a variety of other things to identify your problem was your quad was too strong in relationship to the hamstring. The treatment would be stretch the quad and strengthen the hamstring. If you isolate the cause within two or three sessions of that, you would see a massive reduction in your symptom because you're rebalancing the tone of the muscle on the kneecap, allowing it to stay in the groove and the, with the appropriate tension. That's why I get results in a treatment, two or three treatments. That's it. Do they, there are a whole lot of people getting um, surgery for ACL tears and MCL tears. Um, do they need those surgeries? So when it comes to the ACL, let's talk about a ligament. When does a ligament come into play? This is a, probably the thing that most people don't understand. Ligaments only come into play at the end range of a joint. A ligament is actually lapsed during the entire range of motion of a joint until it gets to its end range. When do most people end up getting an ACL tear? They get it when they're skiing, they're playing some sort of activity. Typically to tear your ACL, it requires an external force. So barring having an external force, in most cases, the ACL isn't used very often. So if you were to tear your ACL and your intent is never to ski again or do the dramatic thing that typically happens, nobody tears an ACL with normal function. It just doesn't happen that way. Right. The ACL is actually designed to prevent the lower leg bone from moving forward on the thigh bone. Well, here's a magical concept. The hamstring posterior thigh bone and a portion of the calf called the gracilis, or not the gracilis, the gastrocnemius, actually pass the back of the knee and can develop enough tone to prevent the lower leg bone from moving forward. Therefore, you could have muscles even with the torn ACL, even with the torn ACL. You could develop your muscles enough to create stability to where you would have normal stability even with a completely ruptured ACL. I've actually treated people and had them return to full function without ever getting that ACL. So assuming you don't want to be Michaela Schifrin, there's a whole lot of people that don't necessarily need these surgeries. Oh my God. I, so to be blunt, I would say 90 to 95% of all surgeries associated with pain are unnecessary because they're being misdiagnosed as structural when they're muscular in nature. Right, so then let's, that's a good segue. So let's talk about back surgeries. I mean, again, there's a whole lot of herniated discs, a whole lot of back surgeries being performed. And there have been studies that the vast majority of back surgeries do not work, that people are still in pain after their back surgeries. So what's the most commonly or frequently misdiagnosis in, in back pain? So I can give you the, the typical diagnoses are pinched nerve, herniated disc, spondylosis, spondylolisthesis, which is arthritis, spondylolisthesis. It's supposedly a shifting of the vertebrae front to back. So they're going to get all these diagnoses. And uh, what's happening again is you're having maybe back pain and you go and you get the MRI and find the structural variation. This assertion is made. Some important points to understand about this concept from the diagnostic component. You know you're getting the MRI when you're having the pain and it finds the structural variation. The thing that led me to become who I am was I was probably the first person that said, well, you did the MRI then and it found it, the structural variation. Is it possible that that structural variation be existed prior to you having pain? Because remember, pain will begin at the initiation of the stress of the tissue. So if the herniated disc existed months or years before you had your pain, it could not be the cause. 
Now, if you know something about these types of things, they're mostly degenerative in nature, so they take years to develop. So I would assert to you that in almost every case that these were found, they existed well before. The next point to understand is, well, if they cause pain, you would expect to see none of them in people who don't have pain. A study in 1994 showed that 70% of the population who have no back pain have herniated or bulging discs. Over the age of 60, 90% of people who have no back pain have degenerative or bulging discs. So that would be a concern. The final point I would make is where is your pain? Each one of these structural variations should cause pain in a specific area, and if the symptom is not there, then you can't say it's causing pain. And when I talk about that, the best one to talk about there is sciatica. Sciatica is often described pain from the butt all the way down the leg, and what happens is you get the MRI, you find you have an L4 herniation or a nerve root impingement, you're told that's the cause. Sciatica runs from the butt all the way down the leg. The nerve root at L4-5, each nerve root innervates a certain area of skin, and that nerve root, L4-5, innervates the area of skin at the inner shin. L4-5 being your lower back, the lumbar spine. Right, the lumbar herniated disc, L4-5, only innervates the inner shin. So if that were to create a symptom, as everyone is told, you can only have a symptom at the inner shin. So if you have pain at your shoulder, your knee, your ankle, Right? You would pretty much acknowledge that's not your inner shin. Therefore, even if an L4-5 nerve root was found, that couldn't be causing your symptom. Well, when you look at sciatica, it runs from the butt all the way down the leg to the foot. That's a massive area greater than the L4-5 area of the inner shin. Therefore, I don't care if you found an L4-5 nerve root that couldn't be causing the symptom. It is an independent variable. That L4-5 nerve root, I hate to tell you, was probably there for decades before you got your sciatica. So, so same thing. So that's then we've what's got leading to these surgeries, and these you, unnecessary surgeries. And same thing. If they if they isolate the proper muscles and build those up, then they can get no more pain, no more chronic pain, no more you know going crazy because of it. That's a full resolution of symptoms. By the way, with sciatica, it's typically a muscle in the butt because that's where the nerve actually begins, straining and impinging on the nerve. So it's a muscular cause creating a neurological symptom. I have, I'm pretty sure I have a 100% success rate of resolving sciatica within weeks, maybe some month or two. And it's always been by addressing sciatica as a hip dysfunction because it's hip-related muscles that have strength, which leads to the impingement of the piriformis on the sciatic nerve. I promise you sciatica has nothing to do with the lumbar spine. Any treatment that attempts to address the lumbar spine, a uh, facet lock, an epidural nerve lock, a uh, uh, meniscectomy, laminectomy, fusion, will never resolve the cause of sciatica. The failure rate for back surgery, by the way, runs somewhere in the 70 to 80% rate, and the medical system themselves coined the phrase failed back surgery syndrome to account for all the people who had surgery and had the very same symptom after the surgery as before the surgery. So who's identifying the fact that the surgery is failing? Not Mitchell Yacht. It's the medical system. Well, and again, the system, and but meanwhile, the doctors are still recommending it and people are still proceeding with surgery or with pain medications because, you know, again, in your book, you talk about the the chronic pain, the problems that they can't get away from, and they think that they're trying to fix it, 
and they're going crazy because of it. They're, they're, they're depressed, they become suicidal. Like they have major, major drugs, treatments, emotional distress as a result of failed diagnosis and failed treatment. It's Yeah, I tragic. always get kind of disturbed when somebody with a very limited understanding tries to attack me and my method and says, you know what the problem with this guy is? He only talks about resolving pain. He never talks about resolving the emotional attachment to pain. They've got this completely wrong. If I pinched you and you had pain, trust me, you're not going to have a nervous breakdown about that. But if I pinched you for the next 10 years, that probably would gnaw on you and get you to the point where you'd have a nervous breakdown. So it is not pain that has an, an emotional attachment. I hate to tell you, it's the failure of those who think they're trying to treat you who are incapable of doing it, leading to chronic pain, which leads to a sense of despair and hopelessness. That's the answer. I have taken people who have been fully depressed for decades. I've treated many suicidal people, which is a very tough thing to experience. And I have taken them and caused their emotional distress to just simply reverse within a treatment or two because suddenly they can experience a change in their symptoms and suddenly there's a belief that that symptom can resolve and they can wake up the next morning and not think like Groundhog Day, this is another day like a day I'd like to forget. So. The idea of treating emotion is really not associated with pain. It's with the inability to address it. When you come to me and you utilize the YAS method, we resolve your pain quickly. You get in a massive sense immediately that there is going to be an ending to this and they're coming real fast. So that's a real important thing to understand. You don't need to take medication to mask your symptoms of depression and hopelessness. You need to resolve the cause of your pain. That's the way you end the emotional attachment to it. Couldn't agree more. And I've had those days where I've gone, you know, will I ever be able to stick my foot over a bicycle <laughs> properly? <laughs> right. Um, so let's talk for a second about hip pain. There, same thing. So um, where where's the the muscle muscular imbalance generally for people that are having hip pain? Okay, good. So here's the one. Let's just talk about hip pain real quick. When we talk about hip pain, we're talking supposedly about the hip joint. Most people don't even know where their hip joint is so that when they're told they have a labral tear or their bone on bone, you have to understand that if you're being told that, that means you must have pain in the joint itself, not anywhere in the hip region. It's got to be the hip joint itself, so you kind of have to know where the hip joint is. The best way to explain that is you're going to kind of put your hand on the top of your pelvic rim, which most people think is their hip. You're going to run your hand down your, the side of your pelvis about five inches. You're going to feel a bump. That's your hip joint. So let's make it clear. If you're having pain anywhere other than right around that bone, it is not your hip joint. So stop thinking that you need you have bursitis or that you have a, a, a labral tear or your bone on bone and that something structural has to be addressed. Right above that, that four to five inch area is a concavity. That's where a muscle called the gluteus medius sits. The majority of people having pain have pain either there slightly behind it in the gluteal region, which is a muscle called the piriformis muscle, which is or your butt. the groin region. And that's typically a muscle called the sartorius muscle. Yeah, and I'm a groin all, girl. Yeah. All <laughs> of the cause of those three different muscles are straining of that hip muscle called the gluteus medius. And its purpose is to keep you balanced and stable when you're standing on your one leg, or obviously with two legs, but most importantly one leg, because when you stand, uh, when you're walking, you're actually taking one leg off the floor uh, and, and have to propel yourself, so you're always standing on one leg or if you're going upstairs and things like that. 
that muscle is probably the most important muscle because it's the one that keeps you balanced. Now, when you're balanced and your pelvis is level to the ground, then all the forces through your legs and even the upper body are correct. And your muscles should be able to adapt and perform your activities without straining. But if that's weak, it's going to cause the opposing hip to either rise or lower. And that changes the forces in the body completely. That's what leads to straining. So very important muscle. And it's very important to be able to differentiate where the hip is and where it's not. In most cases, and I mean 99.999% of cases I've ever treated, the pain was not at the hip joint. It was in one of the muscles around the hip region. All right. True. Like truly. Again, I was joking. I was. I'm a groin girl. Again, I ran around to the top orthopedist, but it's not. It's it's the muscles. Um, all right. So let me ask you. I, I was really surprised when we were talking the other day. There are two things that people are regularly told to do for their muscular health. One is rolling, and one is stretching. And you said you're really not a fan of either of them in particular. Right. So here's the concept behind that. By the way, the other one that most of the medical system says, what do they tell you if you have pain and they think it's muscular? Rest. I love the rest thing. That, that's one of the funniest concepts. <laughs> I like rest. Because if, if it's a muscular deficit, right, the muscular deficit occurs because the muscle strain because it didn't have enough force output to address the force requirements of your activity. So you're not told to rest. Oh, don't, don't do anything. Does resting make your muscles stronger or weaker? You're not using them. So in a sense, you're weakening your muscles. So resting actually feeds into the problem and actually enhances the chance of straining. Now, if you had a ligamentous tear or a fracture or something of that nature, clearly rest is the answer there because healing has to occur. But if it's a muscular deficit, resting is the worst thing you could do for yourself. You need to identify which muscle has strain, do the appropriate strengthening. That's what's going to make you not have pain. When it comes to stretching or rolling, I've always made this point and I will consistently say this. I don't care what you do to minimize your symptom, do whatever it takes, but that is with a caveat. And the caveat is if it's a muscular deficit, it means there's some sort of weakness or imbalance and there's some sort of force variation going on to resolve the problem you have to do the appropriate strengthening with progressive resistance, which causes muscles to get stronger to the point where they can do your activity without straining. There's this premise that stretching is a wonderful concept. Stretching only elongates a muscle for a short period of time. At night, when you're not doing anything and you're laying, there's no blood running through your, bu- through your body because you're not using your muscles and you're not building up lactic acid. So if there's some sort of altered tone of any of your muscles, it's going to begin to present itself. So if your quad, let's say, is stronger than your hamstring, you're going to wake up in the morning with exactly the same shortness of the quad as the day before. Even if you stretched it all day, that wouldn't have changed anything. The same thing goes with rolling. You're not changing the key component as to why you're having the muscular deficit. It is a fourth component. There is a problem with the amount of force output the muscles making in relationship to the force requirements of your activities. So I want people to understand, I'm not saying don't do these things, but do not think you are having any long-term effect on your problem. It will never fix your problem. You're going to have to do some sort of isolated strengthening with progressive resistance. And the thing is, a lot of these things have become big business. I, I'm almost amazed to find out. There are actually, you know, have you have massage facilities and spa facilities. They're actually opening stretching facilities now. 
near our home, we have people, places where you're going just to get stretched. I, it's a lovely sentiment. I, I mean, I think it's nice to be able to take people's pain away in the short term, but you want to do it in the long term. You want to make it so the pain doesn't come back. And that can only occur by that individual addressing it appropriately through targeted progressive resistance right. strength training. And the thing that you said to me, until you get it in balance, if the muscles are in balance, there's no strain. So there's no... Yeah, that's, that's, a, that, yeah, that's a good point. So the stretch, the, the reason the muscle shortens is because typically it's opposing muscle, it's not strong enough to prevent it from, stre- uh, from shortening. So the, the actual impetus for the shortening, which is leading you to stretching, never has changed until you achieve balance of the muscles, equal force on either side of the joint. Right. All right. Mitchell Yass, we could talk for hours. Your book, The Yass Method for Pain-Free Movement, your website, MitchellYass.com. Thank you for your education, for your vision, and for being part of the Bottom Line family. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's great talking to you, and I will always be a part of the Bottom Line family. I think they stand for such great things and really want to get people the right information, and, and I've always thought that was a wonderful thing, and that's why I've always been a part of it. Great. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Bye-bye. I'm talking to Dr. Mitchell Yass, founder of the Yass Method for Diagnosis and Treatment of Chronic Pain. Mitchell has a unique understanding of our muscular system that allows him to see the imbalances in a person and identify the exercises that will right those balances and cure their pain. For some reason, orthopedists and other physical therapists simply don't see what Mitchell sees. Dr. Mitch shares his unique perspective and targeted exercises for healing in his books and in the pages of Bottom Line's newsletters. He's just one of the thousands of experts featured in our twice-monthly newsletter, Bottom Line Personal, who provide their expert advice to guide readers into action in their own lives. In addition to Mitch's solutions for chronic pain, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life, including living a general healthy life, traveling safer and cheaper, finding the best insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and even travel to little-known destinations. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.